The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Through the power of his living voice, be with us now. In his name we pray. Amen. Bless we the Lord. Well, it's wonderful to have the opportunity here at the gracious invitation of my good friend Scott to talk about Hebrews. It is a course that I teach every other year at the seminary, and um, it's been a couple years actually. I missed one year. So I probably taught this epistle 10 times, maybe, maybe more, over the last 20 years or so. And it is a magnificent, magnificent book, and I understand you're at the end of your study. So what I thought I'd do is I'd do a kind of a topic or look at it in the big picture, and I want to study a few texts with you to show you kind of the thing that, that you know, we might be able to discover. Before I begin, though, I do just want to say a quick, very brief word uh, of thanks for your support of the mission in Spain and through your support of me to be over there in the fall to teach, to, to pastor, and, and to really, in a, in a way, serve as a mentor and a you know, an advisor to the mission there. We have two new missionaries in, uh, in Spain. The, the last one just came at Christmas time, young man, both of them students of mine, and I think things are really looking up and they're moving forward in a good way, and so I, I give you many thanks for that. I can't thank you enough. Sometime, perhaps, we can come back and talk at, at length about that. I alert you to look at the opening of your bulletin Sometime read those three pages by Bishop Robert Barron, who I did not know until Scott alerted me to this, and I read it last night. Um, it's really wonderful to read things from people about things you've been saying for a long time, you know, in a different way. And I was really delighted. And, and it, there is a, a, a connection here to the Epistle to the Hebrews. One of the things he says, I think it's on the top of the second page in the, in the left-hand side, is about how what we do when we bring people into the church is we don't kind of catechize them into a body of doctrine. It's not a question of necessarily you know, a, a list of principles, even though those are important and that is part of the process. And what I think both of us have been saying for years is that what we come in contact with is a person. And what I would like to suggest to you today on the basis of Hebrews is what we come in contact with is a body, a body, the body of Jesus, and how important that is. Um, I think Robert Barron, when he talks about that, I mean, he can't help but go to a place like Hebrews, which is, I think, about that more than any other book in the New Testament. Um, the body of Jesus is crucial to our understanding of ourselves as a church that communes on that body. And again, right now at seminary, we're teaching the final year guys. That, so they're about to get their call in two weeks. We're teaching them. Uh, it's a course called Theologia, Lord's Supper. And just this last week, we read Cyril of Alexandria on his commentary on John 17, in which he talks about the body. Now, John 17 is, of course, uh, a, a text that is on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. So it's in the upper room. 
And so there is certainly a Eucharistic context there. But if you want to read something magnificent, read Cyril of Alexandria on John 17 and his sort of that, that Eucharistic optic, that view that is just the gravity of what he's talking about. Um, the other thing that Robert Barron talked about is beauty. Now, it all comes down to beauty, which is so interesting, because, again, those are things we've been saying for years. And there is perhaps no more beautiful language in the New Testament than the language of Hebrews. Now, when we teach this, and you can see here, I put it in English, but when I teach this, I, I, I do the Greek text. Here's the English text, but I, I, I format the Greek text for the guys. And we look at every word in the Greek, and we can do that in 10 weeks. We have to move along, but, I mean, we basically crunch, and they have to translate, and, you know. It's the hardest Greek in the New Testament, I mean, hands down. But it's the most beautiful, and the structure and the the rhetoric and the way he structured it, and it's just magnificent. And and I stand, I, I love language. And I love the Greek language. It's there's, there's so much there. And I'm not a great, great Greek scholar, but I can certainly appreciate what he's trying to do. And just sorting it out is just... And, and you can see it in the translations, the translations. And sometimes it's really hard to translate it because it's just such a I mean, magnificent piece of work. It's beautiful. It's beautiful language. And so I, I, I think you can see, you know... The, the, recognizing, what I try to do with with New Testament guys is to help them appreciate the beauty of the narratives, the beauty of the language, the beauty of of the structure, and how, I mean, it's it's just magnificent to behold what the the New Testament and Old are all about. Um, The topic, the Eucharist in Hebrews, uh, I chose it because I wrote an article on this. Years ago, back in 2004, I think it was, there was a, a call, and I was invited to present a, um, a proposal to Concordia Publishing House for the commentary on Hebrews. And there were three of us who were invited, and I lost, which is fine. I, I lost to John Kleinig. Okay? <laughs> so, I mean, th- th- that is kind of a win, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and he's the right guy because he did Leviticus and he did Hebrews. But what we did was we had to kind of present papers to them, and I did this at the symposium. Any of you who are interested in taking a nap right now, you can go online and you can, you can get the article. It's January 2005, Volume 69, uh, uh, Issue 1. But it's called Entering Holiness, Christology and Eucharist in Hebrews. And I, I read it yesterday. It's actually pretty readable. I think, I think you could read it. I mean, it's not, it's not that erudite, but it's, it, it certainly does get at what I think are some of the core issues. One of the things that is sort of mysterious about the whole New Testament, if, if, especially if you're reading it from a Eucharistic perspective, is how little it appears to talk about the Eucharist. And that has caused many commentators over the year to dismiss that the Eucharist is, in a sense, at the center of what the New Testament is about. Now, I have spent the last 30 years of my life trying to, to demonstrate that the context of the New Testament is a, is a liturgical community that is centered in the Eucharist. And they are, they, they are receiving Gospels. This, this, I think this is a homily. I, think, I don't know if you talked about it as a homily, but I think all the epistles, and I think this one in particular, is a homily. So it was read as a sermon 
takes about 42 minutes to read. I have done that in class. At the end of class, I'll read the whole thing for him. It's bloody difficult, let me tell you. But at the end of class, having studied every word, it's really interesting. You could hear a pin drop because the guys are completely, totally immersed, not just in the, the substance of it, but in the rhetoric, the movement, and you know, they, they sometimes follow the text along as we go. It's, it's, a, it's a great experience. It's, you should try it sometime. But anyway, it, it is, it is a, a text, like many of them, that it's just not overtly there. And I have the name here, Kester. He's one of the, commentate, uh, the commentaries I use. Um, Helm, uh, not Helmut Kester, um, Craig Kester. Te- he's a Lutheran. He teaches at Luther uh, Seminary, at least he did in um, St. Paul for many years. And he's at about my age. He's a very, very fine exegete. And I love his commentary. It's the Anchor Bible Commentary. And we use it. I mean, we read it carefully. In fact, some of the stuff here is from him. But he does not read Eucharist anywhere. Anywhere. And it's so interesting to really kind of have a, this wonderful kind of admiration for his engagement in the text. And on many of the things that he talks about, I cannot help but just marvel at, at how well he does. But this, this myopic, incredibly inability to see the Eucharist in it. So it's a great foil for me because we read him and then we, we go a different direction. And that's one of the ways in which I teach the classes. Let's see what we can find out about what's happening uh, that would make it be a Eucharistic text. I think the social setting, and I don't know how, again, I don't know how much Pastor Bruzek talked about this, is, is and th- these are Kester's things, that it's a community that is going through these few, three phases. And this is sort of typical of many communities. There's a proclamation of the gospel, probably through a gospel like Matthew, because I think this is an early text. It's a very Jewish, so I think it comes as part of the Jewish mission. I would date Hebrews in the 40s. Temple is still around. Uh, people are converted. Um, there appears to be, right away, a period of persecution, probably by Jews. This is a, a Jewish community, most likely. One of the ways I draw it out for guys in class is, you know, I mean, I, I teach Galatians, and I talk a great deal about Paul and the Pharisees, his uh, opposition, the, the Jewish Christian Pharisaical party, read Acts 15, and you'll see they're described there. They were Christians who were Jewish, who were insisting that you had to keep the law in order to be saved, not just believe in Jesus and and the death and resurrection, but but to also keep the law as a matter of salvation. And Paul, of course, was fighting against that. You know, the Pharisees, of course, are the teachers. They're the the leaders of of the synagogues. They're the, the Bible scholars. Hebrews is on the other side. Okay, he, what we're talking about here are priests, and you can see perhaps that these are Jews who have been converted to Christianity. They go into persecution, and they're attracted back to the temple, and so they want to go back to the temple, to the rites, to the old sacrifices. And you can see that really a lot of Hebrews is to talk about how those things are obsolete, and how Christ now is the only sacrifice, and it's His blood that the only blood that matters. During persecution, there was solidarity. But the, the situation that the, the letter is written in is where there is now some friction and malaise that comes. And I love that word, malaise, for that, this community. That there's this malaise that has overtaken the community because they, they know persecution is coming again. They can feel it. They haven't yet given to the shedding of blood. 
But there is this sense that persecution is impending, and they're, they, want, they don't know what to do. They want to they kind of bail. You know, this is where the impulse to go back to the temple and just give it up. Now, I think there's a tremendous amount to be said to us today. Um, and I, <clears throat> I don't know how you feel, but, I mean, Pastor Ladick, wonderful sermon, by the way, my good friend. That was, I don't know, he's gone. Good, good call, Peter. <laughs> anyway, what a, he mentioned the political situation and, and just the, the whole cultural slide. I, I mean, we talk about it endlessly at the seminary now because we're sending out men into the ministry and, and women into deaconess service who are going to be facing a world that is so radically different from the world that we were in. It, and it's, it's kind of frightening for us to think about them going out into that world. I'm a, I am an optimist, but I find myself being increasingly pessimistic about, you know, I look at it as opportunity, as a challenge. I think we are entering a time of persecution. One of my dear friends, Bill Weinrich, who co teaches the course on Eucharist with, with me. He's the one who, who's leading the Cyril of Alexandria study. I don't know if you know him, but he just wrote the commentary on John's Gospel, the first part. Brilliant guy. I mean, 71 years old, but just top of his game. And, he, and I, I probably shouldn't say this. That's what he said. I probably shouldn't say this. But I'm going to tell you what he said this week. And it, was, it, it struck me so much. He said, in the next two years, what we're going to be experiencing as Lutherans is this sort of celebration of the Reformation. And think Barron, you know, you just read that. And that, you know, when, when we kind of exult in our, you know, our history and our heritage, and he, you know, the way he talks, gentlemen, he said, don't kid yourself. The world of Luther and the world of today are radically, radically different. He said, the enemies of Luther in the 16th century believed in the Holy Trinity, believed in the person of Jesus according to his divine and human nature, believed in the real presence, confessed the Nicene Creed, completely supported the ecumenical creeds, and the people of today have no clue about what that is. So we are living in a, a, I mean, in many ways the Reformation was sort of a golden age. And here I'll cite my wife. Because she and I, we feel like we're, we're, with the cultural changes that are going so fast, it's like we're, we're getting hit by a fire hose. And we, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle, how to respond to this. But Linda said to me the other day, she said, you know, we're going to look back. Those of us who were born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that was the golden age. That was the age where, you know, there was solidarity, there was a Christian ethos, and, and we're, we are now in that I, I don't know if we're, we even have the luxury of a malaise. We may be entering right into the persecution. Anyway, th- I think this letter addresses that. And I think what you find in a, a situation, and this is why Pastor's sermon today, Pastor Ladick, was just so wonderful. I mean, what, what we have is a, is a good shepherd who feeds us with his body and blood. And I think that is the underlying key of Hebrews. If you can imagine these people who are about to go into persecution, and it's interesting how he doesn't, he's not overt about the way he says it, but they just know that he's talking about the body of Jesus that they were about to receive as they're hearing this in the context of a, a worshiping community. They're about to receive this body and blood. Now, some people call it a word of exhortation. Is that up there? Yeah, and I think that's right. Exhortation is not necessarily a bad thing. That's what I think you're doing, chapter 13, next week. 
That's what he calls it in 1322. It is a sermon, though. It's a homily. And it's got this beautiful rhetorical you know, capacity with, with logic, emotion, and character. And what I love, and, and I don't know if you know this about Aristotelian rhetoric, but like, you know, if you're listening to a long sermon today, oftentimes the pastor, to kind of get you back, give you a break, tells a joke, or he makes some, you know, it kind of relieves the tension a little bit. And, and that's what rhetoric does. And, you know, the, the, the author of Hebrews, and, I, and as it says at the top, nobody knows who it is. That's from origin. The author of Hebrews is known to God alone. And I think that's true. I don't... But anyway, the author of Hebrews... Instead of telling a joke, what he does is he exhorts people. He encourages them. And it's meant to help them, even though sometimes it's inc- it sounds incredibly harsh. But you can see that's a time out. I mean, it's a time out. I mean, the, you've had this heavy-duty kind of doctrinal, you know, and, and deep theological you know, stuff. And then, he, then he, he kind of leans back and he goes, okay, now this is, this is what you're facing. What I want to do is look at, and I have about 25 minutes to do it, and I think we could do it. I just want to give you a glimpse of how I might interpret the Eucharist here. And I, I've chose three texts. Um, the first one is the Excordium, which usually takes us a lot longer than it should when we study it in class because it is so dense. Um, I think you can see here, ignore that, I, that's sort of a wayward <laughs> parenthesis there, but... This is all one sentence, and it's meant to be so in the Greek. It's a technical term called the periodic sentence. It's all one, has just one period. It's all one sentence. And what I do, and I did this in the English for you, is I put the main verbs in red. It put over on the side here. So the the main verbs is that, that God has spoken and now has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, So he's speaking, and then you have the glorification. Now, not every book in the New Testament has this kind of, like a prologue, you know, an introduction. Luke's Gospel does. It's a beautiful one, another periodic sentence. Not as long, but as beautiful as this, although there's nothing like this in the New Testament, really. John's Gospel has a long prologue, as you know if you've studied John's Gospel. But, I mean, just to point out a couple of things here, um, and, and, and in this way, I, I think you can really see how he, and, and you've, Probably did this with Pastor Bruzik, so this might be just a, a, little, a little bit of a, um, a review. But, but here are the things that we look for. Look, look at the, uh, the participles here, being, bearing, after having. Now, there's a ton of theology right here. Being the radiance of the glory and the impress of his substance is a reference to Jesus' preexistence, which... I don't know, I'll let you deal with pre-existence, but the pre-existence of Christ is a huge topic, and the idea that he pre-existed you know, you know, is, is a controversial topic among scholars. Um, the, the bearing all things by the, the word of his power is both a reference to his pre-existence and his incarnation. You know, and when you really reflect upon that, and as we do you know, in the actual Greek language that he uses, there is a, a, I mean, there's a, a, an entire theology that you can have in that one line. But this is what I'm most interested in. After having made a purification of sins, now that's obviously referring to Jesus in his incarnation, but also his atonement. There's the purification, and that's the big theme, purification of sins. It's obviously a reference to forgiveness. 
And I think right there you have built into that a reference to the Eucharist. Now, how are people going to hear this? How do you hear this? Okay, where does Jesus make purification for our sins? He does it in the atonement on the cross. But how does he do it now? I mean, people sitting in a first century church who are in this malaise, who are worried about being persecuted, you know, when they thought about where purification of sins are, you know, as Jews, they would have said it's in the temple, it's in the sacrifices, you know, it's on the day of expiation, that, you know, in the Holy of Holies. But now, where is it? It's in this humble little group, house church, of people who are huddled around a word of exhortation like this preaching, around the, the body and blood of Christ, that this is where the purification of sins is. This is the, the, the place where we partake of that person, that body, that blood. And then he goes right to the exaltation. I mean, this is good theology. This is sort of humiliation and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, it's interesting, you know, I mean, this is not a, a text about the theology of glory, but he uses that, the author of Hebrews, as part of his exhortation. He says, it may not appear to you right now that you have sat down with Christ at the right hand of the Father, but you have. Because he's, he's got a firm belief in the ascension, you know, and you know that great hymn, Thou hast raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly splendor. There with thee in glory stands. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. Now, whether you realize it or not, and you're going to celebrate Ascension in a few weeks, you are already on the throne with God in Christ. You have ascended with Christ. And that, in, a, in the midst of persecution, what, again, what Pastor Lake talked about this morning at the end of his sermon when he quoted the Apocalypse, that is what keeps us going in a time of malaise and a time of persecution. Now, the, the Eucharist really comes up in the last line here, the last verse. And this is, this, you know, you've got to kind of know the epistle to pick this up. But in the word superior and the word of angels. Okay? That there is something more superior about Jesus than the angels, than Moses. And that, at the very beginning, he's going to refer to angels four or five times in this first chapter. And one of the questions that we ask, and I ask it of the students, is why angels? You know, why this thing with angels? You know? And there are lots of cultural reasons. There's a lot of the, the, the language of angels in the intertestamental period. You know, the Jews were very interested in angels, but there is a specific thing going on with angels here, and especially the, the, the point about superior. And then the, the name, you know, where the name is, there is the presence. There is the presence. Now, what I would suggest to you is that this is going to set up, you know, this excordium. And if you, if you read other commentaries, you know, Kester does it, but others do it even better than he does. He, they, they show you how every part of this excordium is now going to be developed in the first nine chapters. And you can just follow them. You know, and you've got to have... <laughs> You've got to have your wits with you as you walk, walk through this. But one of the things we do as we walk through this text is we, we see how the excordium now is being developed in each of these different sections. There is, I don't know if you guys know about a chiasm. There's a, a chiasm is a circular s- 
but can I write on this? Yeah. Okay. Um, there, there is in this 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 letter of Hebrews, and and the way it's portrayed is sort of a descent to a climax. The climax of the very center of the chiasm is chapter nine, eleven to twelve, and then it all of a sudden goes up to the end. And and what you can see, and I'm t- completely convinced by this, is that these things are all paralleled in a, in a circular way. And this is your center here. And, and why is 9, 11 to 12 the center? Well, look at it. But Christ, having then come as high priest of the good things to come, this is the only place in the New Testament, not this verse, but Hebrews, where Jesus is described as a high priest. So this is, a, this is why some people call Hebrews the high priest Christology. It's really, really unique. So, but Christ, and this is subordinate, having then come as high priest of the good things to come through the greater and more perfect tent. Now, and you have to read a little ahead in, in, in 9, but he'll tell you what that is. He's going to tell you down here. It's his blood. But I would say the greater and more perfect tent is his body. Okay? Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and bulls, but through his own blood, entered Christ, entered once for all into the sanctuary, having found an eternal redemption. Now, this is, this is where this whole epistle is going. Jesus now enters in for us. He's, he is the sacrifice. He's the one who has given up himself for us. And in this, you can see that going to a redemption, I mean, that means to be bought back. And he buys us back through his blood. And here's one other thing about Hebrews. I don't know if Pastor Bruzik mentioned this, but it actually doesn't talk about the temple. The temple is never referred to. He goes all the way back to the tabernacle. So it's almost as if by not talking about the temple, he's saying... The temple no longer exists. Because the temple, the tabernacle, is the body of Christ. You know? And you know that from John's Gospel, chapter 2. Okay, the most important text is in chapter 12. And I was so delighted when John Kleinig and I were talking about this. You've got to love Kleinig. You know, when I submitted my proposal, he, um, you know, he, as I said, he won, he won the contest. But then, but then he, he read my, um, my essay that I just mentioned, and he, you know, it was very complimentary, but he said, you know, you're not being Eucharistic enough. And I said, okay, well, that's good to know. <laughs> I mean, and from Kleinig, that's you know, a good admonition. But he, he reads this text in chapter 12, which kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, you don't really expect it. But he reads this as I do, that this is, um, this is the Eucharistic text. And this is the text from which we get the language of, therefore, with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. This is where it comes from. I mean, there are other places where you get the sort of the theology of that. But this is where it is. It's right here. 
Now, the key words are these main verbs. You can see them in red. You have not approached and you have approached. Now, that word is used for entering up into a holy place. So to approach holiness, to approach a place where God dwells. And the contrast, as you can see very clearly, is between Mount Sinai and now Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the first part, which I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but you can see, you know, where Moses said, I am afraid and trembling. I mean, this whole thing is filled with fear, burning fire, gloom and tempest, you know. Um, th- th- which those having heard begged that a word no longer be given them. They couldn't bear the command that even a beast touched the mountain, it will be stoned. So fearful was that. You know, I mean, you can just feel the, you know. And this is, this is the, 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 the world, you know, under the law. You know, this is, this is what the law does. And, you know, I, I'm always thinking Paul, too. And, some, you know, the early church thought Paul wrote Hebrews. So, I mean, and, and it, it could be, although most modern scholars have, have um, discounted it. But when I teach Paul, I mean, Paul talks a lot about the promise going directly to Christ. You know, the promise to Abraham, that all nations in you will be blessed. And, of course, Abraham is the big sacrifice guy. You know, there's a number of sacrifices with Abraham. And what Paul talks about is that the law is a parenthesis. And he tells you, you know, in Galatians, why the law, you know? And, and his opponents, who are Judaizers, Jewish Christians, who are Pharisees, they want to take the promise through the law to Christ. And, and, and Paul says no. I mean, and this is a key thing to understand, even about this, that there, there, there is no law now. There is no law. Because the law was brought to its perfect fulfillment in Christ. And how that happens is, and it's really interesting, is on the cross where Jesus is hanging there, he's hanging there as the ultimate sinner. And what happens on the cross is when the law looks at Christ, what does the law do to a, a sinner? Curses him. And so there's this collision between Christ and the law, and it's in a way, Paul says the law kills him. The law is what kills Jesus. It curses him to the point of death. And what happens then to the law now, because here is where Jesus is fulfilling both the first and second tables of the law, and in many ways, especially the second one, this is where he loves his neighbor as himself. And so, as Paul says, there is only one law now, and it is love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's it. Love. Beatles had it right. All you need is love. And Paul, Paul would affirm that. Okay? Now, this is talking about that nomistic, which means law, life, under Sinai. And it's fearful. It's trembling. Because you can't keep the law. It's, it's a really, it's a, I mean. But the second part is about Mount Zion. And just listen to this. You can hear the poetry in this. But you have approached Mount Zion, and the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, and here's the angels, and myriads of angels in festive gathering. That's panegyria, this, this feast of feasts. And an assembly of firstborn registered in the heavens, a God and a judge of all, and spirits of the righteous who have been made complete. That's the language of, of perfection and a mediator of a new covenant. And I mean, when you read in the Greek, you can just see this. Jesus, 
Jesus, bam, there it is. And blood, there it is, and blood of sprinkling speaking in, here's the word, a superior way to Abel. Now there are the angels and they're superior. And look at, they both speak. Moses said, I'm afraid and trembling. But look what speaks in a superior way to the blood of Abel. You know, which is, was the sign that, that we have sunk into the very, very bottom. Now, I'll not deny, this is talking about the end. The end, you know. It's talking about when the Lord comes again, heavenly Jerusalem. But here, this is the heart of my teaching. I think it's because it's the heart of the New Testament teaching. The end is here in the Eucharist. Eternity is present in the Eucharist. The finite world, this is a theologian, is capable of the infinite. And so when you go to the Eucharist, you're entering heaven. You're entering eternity. You are already participating now in the heavenly Jerusalem. I would make one change in my essay, because I talk about it as a foretaste, which it is, but it's even more, and I use this language now. It's not just a foretaste, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, of the heavenly feast. It is a participation in it already now. And how does the liturgy go? With angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. Now, I think your first hearers of the, the letter to the Hebrews are going to hear it as this. And what does, what does Jesus' blood speak the blood of sprinkling, what does it speak to us? Well, I think you go back to the very beginning. And I think this is what they would hear. And this is, they, they would do things like this. And I would imagine when you study this, you would do the same thing. What are they hearing? They're hearing that this is where they received the purification of sins. This is where, and, and, and purification, there's a wonderful quote in their, your bulletin by Capon about absolution. Wow, is that good? The bulletin was all over this, this text. Of course, you, you see that because you're looking for it. But why, why is this you know, purification found here in chapter 12? Because the blood that is sprinkled, that is superior to the blood of Abel, is the blood of Jesus that we eat and drink, become part of. It, it, this is that communion with God. Remember that the only purpose God has for us is to be in communion with him and his blood. And you know that the author of Hebrews understands that. Because he's talking to people who had communion with God by going to this temple in Jerusalem and making sacrifices, the sacrifice of blood and goats. And it, it, it did purify, but it was, it was not yet the fullness of what was coming. Where our, our, our epistle lesson for today, when the Lamb of God comes, you know, and his blood that, you know, and you've seen the, the, the pyramids with the lamb and the cutting aside and the staff and flowing into a cup. It's the lamb's blood that, that speaks louder than any of the blood of the Old Testament. And that's why he goes back to the beginning, to the very first sacrifices that Abel and Cain made. Anyway, I have five minutes for questions. Is that clear? You get it? Is it all there? All right. I mean, how do you do the Eucharist in 40 minutes, you know, with a little introduction about it? I mean, it's in, in Hebrews. But th- this is how we read the text. And, you know, I took three texts that I thought were <coughs> beginning, middle, and end, so you can see how it takes across the whole thing. Questions? Yes, ma'am. So, we're often that 
Yes, yeah. Yes. Sure. Great question. Here, here's how I would put it, and I and I think I think this is an important way of understanding it. Christ's sacrifice was once and for all, and and Hebrews uses that that language once and for all, once and for all, once and for all, and he's doing that to contrast to the ongoing sacrifices there in the temple. But Christ is continually being sacrificed in the presence of the Father on our behalf for our purification of sins. So it's. I mean, this, this is the difference between those of us who are kind of Eucharistic sacramental people and others who are not. That, that the sacrifice of Christ is a historical event, it's done, and now we're in this kind of life of sanctification, sort of moving forward. Whereas we would say that, that Christ is continually being sacrificed for us. And we get the privilege of entering into that every time we receive his, you know, the Eucharist, but but also the, the preaching. I mean, I, I hope that, you know, I'm sure Pastor uh, Bruzik has talked about how important the proclamation is. I, I had a little thing on that at the beginning here. How do I go page up um, here? A little thing in the beginning here that it's where do I say it? I don't I don't see it. But it's it's a it's a word that yeah the proclamation of a performative word that Christ is present in that preaching and it's ongoing ongoing ongoing. I hope that answers. Is there's a comment from Clement today about how the wounds are always speaking. The wounds are always right. speaking. So it's, it's a one historical thing, but the wounds continue to speak. speak. Jesus to Thomas, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Here, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's. I mean, that's how. I mean, we have to understand that sacrifice. And it's not as if we're sacrificing, but that sacrifice is there pleading for us every minute, and we enter into that. You know, when we come on Sunday, you know, or seven forty on. Monday to whenever. Yes, sir. That was the, I'm concerned the spider, maybe you did, but when I was growing up, one of the major differences between Lutherans and Catholics, Roman Catholics, were that the Roman Catholics believed that when the Eucharist was done, that that was literally another sacrifice of Christ on that altar. That they, he was literally sacrificing, you know, Christ. It was only a one-time thing. The forgiveness covered all sins, beginning and you needed to confess your sins. You needed to bring them forth before him, and then he would forgive them, but he didn't need to be sacrificed again. Now what I'm hearing you saying is that we're going back even further, back to where Roman Catholics are. No, here's here's how... Here's how I put it. It's the difference between seeing sacrifice as a noun or a verb. And we take it as a noun. And I would say, with all confidence, that on the altar is the sacrifice of Christ that I partake of. And if that's not true, then what's the point? It's his body and blood. It's his sacrifice. That's there. And when it's there, that means the Father is seeing that sacrifice being offered up Continually for us, for the purification of our sins. There's a difference between seeing and reminding, and that's when when the father sees the blood 
he is reminded that his son did go to that cross, was the worst sinner in the world, but he isn't anymore. You can't sacrifice now. The sacrifice that was the one that saved us was when Christ stood on that cross and took every sin ever to be on him, that God turned away from him because as a just God, he couldn't see, couldn't look upon the sin. Why have you forsaken me, Father? And he died with all the sins on the world and then came back perfect. That's where I'm having the problem that you can't sacrifice, uh, I mean, it was an unblemished lamb that the Jews used to try to do, but to me, I don't understand why he needs to be re-sacrificed when he clearly said it's been done, it is finished. That, I've done it, it's paid in full, everything is Well, done. you misheard me, because he's, I'm just saying his, his sacrifice is ongoing, it's being offered continually in the presence of God, because it's it's... And that's what the Eucharist is, the ongoing participation in the sacrifice of Christ as a noun. Yes, Holly. Yeah. Right. And and I mean, I I can't say it except in this way. Remembrance is huge. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a whole theology of it's called anamnesis. You know, this sense of remembrance. And what happens in the Eucharist is this ongoing remembrance of the sacrifice. That is ongoing. It's not happened, you know, 2,000 years ago and it's over. It's still going on now. I mean, that's what's happening in heaven. They're, they're, the, the lamb is there, and you, you know, what does Revelation say? I mean, what's the song of heaven, you know? The lamb has been slain and raised again, and that's what they're singing about, that this ongoing sacrifice is being offered to the Father again and again and again for the sins of the world, and we enter into that in the Eucharist. I think... I don't want to say much more than that, because I, I will get into trouble. I, will, I mean, I will, I will, you know, really. And that's why you can only say so much. And, you know, sure, we, we have had in the history of the church places where people have gone too far. But what they're trying to do in a way, though, is to emphasize the fact that it is blood, it is a sacrifice, and that's what we are participating in. Any others? Is it time, Pastor? Yes, sir. Can you explain the difference between the temple and the tabernacle? Yeah, the tabernacle was the wandering place of God's presence up until King David received the, um, the well asked that we could, that they could build a, a temple in Jerusalem, and of course Solomon built that. So this is the temple that is permanent in Jerusalem, and the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, and that there were tabernacles, there were various altars when they came, the children of Israel came into Israel. There are different places, and Jerusalem was the center one. But this is, this is the, here's it, this is the movable feast, and this is the feast that's in Jerusalem. That's the difference. Okay. Let's rise for a blessing. How's that?
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.